Hello and welcome to The Crit, a fortnightly podcast on design. My name is Ollie Stratford. I'm one of your hosts. And my name is Christina Rapatsky. I'm your other host. We've got quite a lot to get through today, don't we, Ollie? Yeah, it seems as if suddenly the design world has exploded into life. After a year that was fairly one note in its focus on the pandemic, a lot seems to be happening. Yeah, uh, not all of it great. There's been some troubling institutional developments uh, here in London at one of the main museums. But there's also been some uh, some other news that we're going to talk through. We're going to look at some some logos again, which is always one of my favourite things to do on the crit. Yeah, not all of it is depressing. There's light and shade. <laughs> light and shade. <laughs> the entire spectrum. All the emotions. Yep. Let's dive in. So the first story that we want to talk about is, I think, a really serious one. And uh, it's also one that's ongoing. So we're going to be quite careful with what we say about it. This is news of widespread redundancies at the V&A Museum in London and also plans to restructure the museum, how its departments are going to run here on out. We should give full disclosure, which is that we have colleagues and friends and frequent Desenio collaborators at the VNA. Neither Christina nor I have had an opportunity to speak to anyone at the VNA who's going through these processes yet. Um, it's obviously a hugely fraught time for everyone there, and I'm sure the last thing they would want is to be speaking to journalists about it at present. Um, so we are exclusively going off the information that the VNA has put out. So yeah, what information do we have at this stage? We know that the VNA has had several rounds now since September last year, I think, in the autumn uh, of redundancy consultations. And so I think front of house staff, which are a hugely important part of the running of any museum, uh, I think were the first to undergo those consultation rounds. But now a major restructuring of the curatorial department, resulting in the redundancies of 20% of curatorial staff, has been announced. And that's what we're going to focus on primarily. Do you want to uh, talk us through the figures, Ollie? Yeah, I can do. So the redundancies have been prompted by the pandemic. A lot of the museum does receive government funding, but not enough to maintain its normal operations. It normally gets a lot of money through its shop, for instance, ticket sales to its exhibitions, and also corporate hires. So, like all museums, the VA has to have all of those stuff in order to make up a shortfall in funding. With visitor numbers having dropped off, all of that income has dropped off too. So the VNA has said that it needs to reduce costs by at least 10 million by 2023 if it's uh, to keep going. Now, along with the redundancies, a huge and overreaching restructuring of the museum's curatorial departments and I suppose its curatorial outlook, one will have to assume, has been announced where they're going to shift from the way the departments are organised and have been organised for a long time, which is broadly based on material, to at least for the European and American collections, and I think we should talk about uh, this distinction, um, to a a chronological approach where curators will work across departments uh, or across the old departments in, um, let's see, four segments. So medieval through late 18th century, 19th century to 1914, and modern and contemporary. Sorry, that's three departments. 
Then, significantly, another department is going to encompass sub-Saharan Africa, African diaspora art, and the Asian collections, all kind of being rolled into one that will not, as far as I understand, be treated in the same chronological approach as the European and American collections. It's very hard to say at this early stage because we don't know exactly how these departments are going to look and how they're going to run. Tristram Hunt, who is the director of the museum, has said we're not retreating from any part of the collections. The curators will be more stretched, it's true, but I hope the chronological approach will lead to more synergies between them. Now, I think there's a couple of things to unpack there. In principle, there's nothing wrong with a chronological display. No. It may not be the most groundbreaking curatorial tactic, but if it encouraged dialogue between different departments, different forms of design, different material expertise, that could be a good thing. Maybe helpful, who knows. What I think does become strange is, as you said, Christina, on the one hand, you have this clear emphasis on chronology, and that's going to be essential to the museum, but only within its European and American collections. Then you have this other department, which seems very amorphous, as you say, Africa, the African diaspora, the Asian collections. Now, it's very unclear how all of that fits together, and it's very unclear how the museum avoids this sense that really what they're doing here is going to end up with very much a West and the rest narrative. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate because that's a museological kind of original sin almost, this uh, idea of treating the West and Western culture as something complex that of course undergoes, you know, uh, sophisticated historical processes and material changes and so on, whereas non-Western cultural artefacts are part of some sort of assumed ahistorical and uh, static world, which isn't subject to the same historical processes as the West. And that is a deeply flawed idea. And like you say, we, we can't say that that is what's happening necessarily at the V&A, but it does seem a strange distinction to make if you are going to overhaul the curatorial uh, approach. Yeah, and I think this comes at a very unfortunate time for a lot of reasons, one of which is in the UK, there's recently emerged a debate after Oliver Dowden, the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, sort of ploughed into this idea of how should we treat the legacy of the British Empire and aspects of culture, which it's, it's a dreadful, overused and overly general term, but are problematic in some ways. Mm. So Dalden has said that museums should not be pressured by a vocal minority and the vocal minority he's talking about here, he rather disparagingly sort of dismisses as the woke left, that museums should not be pressured and instead they should have a retain and explain policy around difficult artefacts. Yeah, and this sits against the background of developments from last summer when UK museum institutions were dealing with the, the fallout of the Black Lives Matter protests and a kind of the renewed urgency of that movement and thinking about how to respond to that in a museological setting and there was for anyone who who didn't see this footage as uh, extraordinary footage when Edward Colston a statue of uh, the 
Bristol slave owner was toppled and thrown into the harbour. Uh, and this kind of set off uh, something of a frantic uh, response from ministers, actually. There was a there was a group that was set up called the Common Sense Group, uh, and uh, it was all about retaining these uh, monuments to historically contested figures. And historically contested was always the kind of euphemism or the shorthand for people who were somehow involved with the slave trade. And so there were instances of, of uh, political pressure being put on museums, actually, in the autumn of 2020, where the Museum of the Home, the Jeffrey Museum in London, was pressurised to keep its statue of Robert Jeffrey, who was also a beneficiary of the slave trade and who the museum is named after, even though the local community really would have preferred for it to have been taken down. So th- there's there's this kind of quite uneasy context of political pressure in the museum world. It suddenly seems that way as if pressure is mounting, The government recently, Dowden, hosted a meeting with heritage and museum bodies in the UK. It's not actually entirely clear who attended that meeting or precisely what happened at that meeting. But the institutions are reported to have been reminded that they should remain impartial and not be beholden to a vocal minority. So there's huge fears that museums are having their editorial independence influenced or impinged upon. And I think one of the reasons that's so fright it would be frightening at any time but one of the reasons it's so frightening at the moment is the example of the vna shows quite how dependent our cultural institutions are on government funding now if suddenly you have the government coming out and making remarks about how museums should be dealing with political issues you you might begin to worry about what the interrelation between those areas are Especially with an institution like the VNA, which is so kind of embedded in Britain's colonial legacy. You know, it grew out of the uh, 1851 Great Exhibition, which was, I mean, it became a model for how to exhibit industrial design and manufacturing. It was the first of its kind. It's like the first design fair. But it was also all about showing off the industrial prowess of Britain and its colonies. So there's that legacy at the VNA. I know they've been doing work on that legacy and kind of thinking critically about it within the institution. Uh, but it's just it, it does need to continue and it is a little bit worrying, this kind of rolling of Asia and and African collections into one. You know, it's it It doesn't sit well. I think something people should be alert to as well as this story progresses and moves forward is the decision to restructure and the redundancies. At the moment, the museum has provided no explanation of how those are linked, for instance. So it hasn't come forward and said, we're having to restructure in this way because it's the best way to make the most of the expertise we will still have once those redundancies are over. Now, there may well be that explanation, that may be forthcoming, but at the moment, these are slightly separate issues and I think should be treated as such. I think we just want to extend our, our, you know, our warmest thoughts and support to everyone going through this process because it's it's the most grueling. I think anyone who's ever been through anything like it will know that even if you retain your job yourself, then you are seeing colleagues go and you're having your teams disrupted and changed. Yeah, it's terrible and we're we're thinking of of our friends at the VNA.
All right, Ollie, I've just sent you a, a link uh, with some pictures in it. And I'm wondering if you can describe what you're looking at. Yeah, so I'm looking at a collection of furniture. It has a very particular aesthetic. I would call it digital tumescent. <laughs> There's lots of sort of bulbous forms. And, it, and they're actually gifts, the things I'm looking at. So they're these strange, slightly ASMR-y, uh, shiny, latexy, bulbous forms that vaguely form sofas. And then some bits are quivering. Other bits are um, rearing up. They're, they're, they're growing, <laughs> they're, they're growing, uh, thickening. Um, <laughs> digital tumescent. I'm going to stick with that. Oh, God, it sounds a bit unpleasant, actually. Uh, I mean, do you like what you see? <laughs> uh, it's quite hypnotic. It, it's quite... So this... <laughs> we should explain what yeah. I'm looking at. Mm. Uh, this is the work of Andres Reisinger, who's, who's an artist and designer. And he made his name, I suppose, from producing virtual furniture, which he showed on Instagram. Yeah, and he's in the news now because he has uh, sold some of this virtual furniture in an online auction uh, through a platform called Nifty Gateway. And he sold 10 pieces um, for for an astonishing sum. I think it amounts to $450,000 in total. Absolutely crazy. Yeah, they're primarily virtual, but a few of them will also be recreated physically. Yeah, they're unusual pieces. Some are sort of obviously impossible to execute physically. Others look as if they could maybe be manufactured. In answer to your earlier question of whether I like them, I don't I don't think I do like them, but I'm definitely fascinated by them. They're, they're quite hard to look away from. Yeah, and maybe we could explore a little bit how they've been able to make so much money because the virtual versions of these pieces of furniture, and they're called things like deep space sofa, complicated sofa, complicated drawer, uh, and tangled chair, uh, and that sort of thing. They've been sold and the authenticity and ownership certificates are provided through a kind of blockchain technology. And they can then be used by the owners on virtual reality platforms and gaming platforms like Decentraland and uh, Somnium Space. Sorry, Somnium. I don't know what this is, actually. Do you know what Somnium Space is? I think you can put them into Minecraft. That's the one I know. You can drop them into game engines. Mm. So potentially there are some uses as to why you would want to drop furniture into a sort of digital world i don't fully know um i haven't actually ever played minecraft which is quite an omission um but it doesn't strike me that much of the game is about sitting down or on sofas um but this is interesting because it's very much design entering this world of virtual art i suppose and trading virtual commodities designer says I hope that it opens up, and he's talking about the auction here, doors to many other artists and designers. This is a new way, a complementary way to continue growing our careers and businesses. And yeah, I don't know. I feel very unwith it in terms of the kind of technological developments here and the world that these pieces of furniture exist in because... It strikes me as completely mad that you could complement your business as a designer with selling unreal things. Yeah, 
I'm flummoxed by the whole thing. Uh, but apparently they sold out in 10 minutes. Yeah, which is interesting. He's clearly done very well with this and has clearly been able to make a lot of money off producing these things. Now, whether you can expand that to different studios, because I think lots of studios have digital capacity, they could create digital furniture. I can't imagine there would be a huge market in which loads of designers would be able to sell digital chairs and digital sofas. It reminds me a little bit of when there was all that excitement around collectible design and that was seen as it was going to be a bold route forward for designers. You'd be able to trade your work through galleries like an artist. And it worked for some, but not many. I don't think many designers have made a huge amount from collectible design. Credit to him, though. It's an interesting move, and I think it is quite an exciting thing to do. I mean... Well, he's laughing all the way to the bank anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's interesting because it does challenge your preconceptions a little bit. And you get this as well within digital art. I think lots of people just don't get digital art and why they would spend huge amounts to purchase a digital file. And I guess uh, defenders of digital art, who I think are probably right, point out, well, we're just not used to that way of doing things. Traditionally, our art has been physical and we attribute a lot of the value to owning that physical object, but that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. And I guess that's kind of interesting when applied to design and furniture, because furniture sort of has always been associated with function and that importance of the of it working as a physical option. But then lots of collectible design, I guess, doesn't really have that much function to it. If you're spending all of this money buying, I don't know, a $400,000 chair, are you going to be sitting in it every day? And then maybe why not just buy a digital one if you find it an interesting sort of objet d'art? Well, I suppose it's not an objet d'art. Digital file d'art? Well, the boot's very much on the other foot now, Christina, because I am sending you a link and I am going to ask you to describe what you can see. Should be with you now. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. Um, Thank you for that. I'm... (laughs) (laughs) That... Not the audio reaction I was hoping for, as it sounds like I've sent you something disgusting. Well, you have. Uh, well, I, I'm looking at a, a two app icons. Um, they're two versions of the same icon. Uh, they've got a beige background and a, an Amazon smile, you know, that smile that is also an arrow. And so the beige background, I, I think, I guess is meant to look like a cardboard box, but it also looks like white person skin. And then there's an unfortunate detail over the uh, cheeky smile is a, a rectangular patch of blue with a serrated edge, which does make... <laughs> this is this is tape sealing down the box, right? That's the idea. It looks like a box and then right, yeah. a bit of, yeah, bit of tape it, to keep, yeah. your, okay. keep your parcel safe. Well, it's just it does look like Hitler. <laughs> it looks like a Hitler moustache. A little cheeky... Cheeky Hitler. A little blue Hitler moustache. It's it's unfortunate. This is the news that Amazon has had to slightly embarrassingly redesign their their logo. And it's a new logo. They only launched this cardboard box app icon uh, at the start of the year, I think. And then after it was pointed out by 
wags that the box looks a, looks a lot like the Fiora. Mm. They've had to they've had to do a quick change, haven't they? They've had to ditch the mustache. But but they, that's the thing they haven't ditched the mustache. I'm looking at the other version and it's very similar. There's still a rectangular blue patch in the place of the mustache. It's just the serrated edge is gone and it's got a little dog ear fold to it. But I mean the effect. There's still once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Oh, it's very unfortunate. What do, what does Amazon say about the logo? The new one, they said, we designed the new icon to spark anticipation, excitement and joy when customers start their shopping journey on their phone, just as they do when they see our boxes on the doorstep. Oh, no. It's an embarrassing thing. It's an embarrassing thing to launch a logo that looks like Hitler. It's presumably one of the things you check for when you're launching a new logo. You know, is the logo racist? No, great. Does the logo look like Hitler? Yes, it does look a bit like Hitler. Okay, well, we better change that then. But to have launched... Rip it up and start again. (laughs) That could be a problem with our audience. It's just such a strange thing, because I don't know about you, but the emphasis which Amazon is putting now on that Smile logo, which I think has been around maybe since the early 2000s, and also trying to personify their cardboard boxes and make that part of the branding, that feels quite new and something they're putting a lot of emphasis on. They do a lot of Christmas ads, for instance, where the boxes are sort of singing as they go out to people's houses. Sparking joy and excitement. I think the previous logo for the app was... Uh, with the trolley you know the amazon trolley but that is of course it's a skew morph do you know that word it's a good word i do know skew morph yeah Yeah, this is this is when you sort of use real world physical objects as sort of digital signposting right so like um a piece of paper to represent word or something exactly or an envelope to represent an email and uh, yeah kind of an outdated emblem but that still has the recognition of the thing you want to um um, to communicate and of course uh, you don't use shopping trolleys to do online shopping so I don't know it's it's a it's I suppose it's all part of an attempt to get away from that kind of 20th century physical realm of shopping and to uh to, to provide a design language for, for the new e-commerce retail experience. But yeah, unfortunately, this one, this one did end up looking a little bit, uh, a bit, a bit Nazi. Reich-esque. So another sad story, but also I hope a celebratory one, which is the news that Paul Crutzen, a Dutch scientist who did the initial work to discover how certain chemicals could break down ozone and who also popularized the term the Anthropocene has died uh, aged 87 but a man who had an absolutely astonishing life. Absolutely astonishing life and absolutely astonishing legacy. The Anthropocene although it's not officially I don't think the age now in which we live uh, there is some sort of body that decides these things it's just it's become de facto our age and he uh, he was among the first, I think, to coin this and certainly championed it as a term in 2000 uh, on the sort of eve of his retirement. He spoke at a conference in Mexico and he said that he declared rather <laughs> that we that we now live in the Anthropocene, which is um, the age in which life on Earth is characterized by human dominance of 
biological and chemical and geological processes um that in itself i think is is an astonishing legacy to have but he also did as you say ollie this immensely important work on the ozone layer and ozone depletion yeah i think he's quite a heroic figure really um because really impressive scientific research uh, amazing accomplishments he won the nobel prize for it but also someone who somehow his ideas and thinkings were able to percolate through and have a real impact so the ban on cfcs Mm. the chemicals which help break down the ozone layer that stems directly from Crutzen's work and that's that's really something I think to have research to have groundbreaking research but then for it to have political consequences and as you say all of this work with the Anthropocene it's been so important for hammering home to people I think especially in design that humans are part of an ecosystem (laughs) Our, our actions our actions when we produce when we consume they have an effect on everything else around There's a new architectural style in town. Have you heard, Ollie? <laughs> I have heard. I'm delighted it's arrived. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> this is Owen Hopkins's thing, right? Yes. Owen Hopkins and I think a collaborator, her name is Erin McKellar. Uh, they put out a new book called Multiform Architecture in an Age of Transition. And I think it's a special edition of architectural design. So it's a new book, but it's also it's been launched in quite a... A spectacular way. I'm afraid I don't actually know the other writer's work. I know Owen's a little bit. I think he's an interesting critic and curator, so I'm keen to see what he has to say. I haven't had a chance to read the magazine. I have read his Twitter offensive, however, where he's been uh, he's been pushing multiform in quite bombastic style, as multiform is what comes after postmodernism. We have modernism and then we had postmodernism and now we have multiform one thing about it i thought was quite funny on the twitter barrage so they all begin with hashtag multiform is and one says hashtag multiform dismisses the grand narrative in favor of the particular the tactical and the opportunistic and i just thought oh, i don't i don't know if there are many more grander narratives than declaring a new architectural style <laughs> for the age I'm not quite sure whether multiform is the full abandonment of grand narrative that that tweet presents it as. It's been launched in uh, in the grandiose way in which uh, like manifestos are launched, uh, and I think that's that's what's interesting about it. I should say we we haven't looked at the book yet. I've just requested a review copy, but we can say a little bit about how it's been. Um, how it's been promoted so far. I'm quite keen to see that review copy because I don't know about you, but I've read his explanations online as to what multiform is. And I, I have a question. Do you understand what multiform is? <laughs> because I've read quite a bit, but I'm still not sure I fully get it. No, yet. I don't. I don't understand what it is. The claim is this is a movement. He calls it a movement. And that is on par with postmodernism. But then when you kind of dig into what multiform actually is, it seems so multifarious and diverse that you begin to wonder what the uh, what, you know, what, what we're actually talking about. Yeah, that was the problem I kind of had with it too. So he's very strong on the negative definition. So he says it's not a style. He says it uses a lot of the same traits that postmodernism did, this kind of collage, bold use of colour, sampling, you know, all that jazz. But it's not postmodernism, apparently. Yeah, it would be... Um... 
Let me see what he says. A simplistic and superficial reading. Sometimes it seems like he's talking about a generation as well, rather than a movement. Many of the people he lists who are multi-formers have kind of one foot, would have grown up in the analogue world, will remember, he says, what it's like not to have a, a mobile phone, whereas they are still working very skillfully in a in the new digital world so, so so that seems another way in which he he kind of tries to group them yeah so i think he has he has this thing that multi-form whatever exactly it is is somehow an architectural response to the complexity of the times we live in right and competing influences constantly changing social situations he talks about big data and the sort of digital merging into the physical what i find interesting i think he's i think he's quite acute in his assessment of a lot has changed in the world around us since postmodernism was around and since modernism and the things which drove them so it would make sense that perhaps we will begin seeing a new architectural style or tendency emerge with that i'm, I'm kind of on board with him where at the moment without having read the detailed description i get a bit lost is as to whether he's quite so on the money in his summation that multi-form is that response. It's hard, isn't it? It's just so ambitious. Uh, it's often very difficult to see the the kind of architectural tendencies of one's own moment. It's clear looking back at the early 80s and see that, well, th- there were buildings going up that, that now have, you know, had had something of a unified style or certainly characteristics that that were common to them and um so i don't think it's like a fool fool's errand to try i think it's particularly hard because he wants to define this in terms of hybridity in terms of saying everyone's responding in different ways and it's so fluid and that's what unites it into multi-form but i think an obvious rejoinder and i'm sure he has an answer for this is well why is it helpful to group them together then what, what do you get from combining all of mm. these things? What do we get from speaking about it as multiform? What benefit to architectural discourse do we get from grouping these things that are very hybrid? Because I don't think it's enough really to say, well, what unites them is that nothing unites them. It, it feels like a bit of a trick, maybe. Yeah, I think the proof will be in the pudding, the pudding being whether people actually start using this term, whether it catches on. That's always the way with it, this type of thing. So I guess we'll find out. <laughs> will the pudding be delicious enough for everyone to order it? <laughs> Right, well, I think that concludes this episode of The Crit. I don't have anything else to say, really. Uh, do you, Ollie? No, I'm totally spent. It's been nice, though, to see the design world begin to erupt into life a little bit more again. I suppose we're coming up to that time of year when in uh, in more conventional times, we'd be moving towards the Salone del Mobile, which is often when you do begin to get this uh, increasing drip of new design news. So... Interesting to see that's that's carrying on even in this unusual year. We'll be back in a fortnight. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, people can get in touch, can't they, Ollie? They can. They can email us on thecrit at deceniamagazine.com. And you can also get in touch on social media at the crit podcast on instagram or at the crit design on twitter in the interim stay safe wear a mask we're not out of the woods yet
episode of The Crit was produced by Evie Hall and edited by me, Christina Rapatsky. Our jingle is by Yuri Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pat.